Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. The Media Project gives you a half hour of commentary and analysis every week on what is going on with the media. And this week there is good news and bad news about the news. More on that to come. But we were talking, folks, just before the uh, tape started rolling about one of the interesting trends in journalism, which is we follow each other. Let me just set it up here by saying that a remarkable story broke through The Guardian, the British news organization that has an aggressive American presence digitally. A story about Clarence Thomas, about uh, lawyers who had big business pending for the Supreme Court now have been found to be channeling money to Clarence Thomas, apparently for Christmas parties, Venmo payments, online payments to a top aide. And what provoked our interest as journalists was how suddenly the floodgates have broken on this story. After years, nobody wrote anything about Supreme Court ethics and now... Everybody's doing it, right? Yeah. Oh, I didn't introduce my... I was just gesturing toward <laughs> Rosemary Armeo. <laughs> Investigative journalist Rosemary Armeo is here. Judy Patrick, former editor of the Daily Gazette. Barbara Lombardo, former executive editor of the Saratogian and the Record of Troy. We're all sitting in a newsroom here. We can't quite see each other because there's some uh, renovation going on. Anyway, Rosemary, yeah. you were about to talk about this. Uh, uh, it, it is a really interesting phenomenon. As an investigative reporter, you always want to pick a topic about which you are not the first. You have a unique angle. You carry the story far, but you have to have something to build on, some report, some source, some beginning, or it's very hard to bring the story together. The beginning of the Clarence Thomas story here in this modern age that we've seen was by ProPublica, and they really did start with nothing. It was just like, you know, these are important guys. We never write about them. We should really look into it. That I think that is the hardest kind of journalism. The risk is high. You could spend a lot of time and get nothing. They got something. But they then put you out can... a series of stories, and then since then, they're not the only ones. They've been picked up by other places like The Guardian by now. And it's like the sources suddenly begin talking, the tips start coming in. It's you have one story and then a whole bunch follow. You've all had that, right? Right. And we've had just the opposite as well, where you write a story you've spent a lot of time on and it gets published and nothing happens, crickets. And then it goes into a big black hole of nothing unless somebody else picks it up. That's very disappointing for the uh, reporter who has spent so much time on it. But we've seen this again and again where something gets covered, as Barbara said earlier, the drip, drip, drip of journalism. Stories happen slowly and then it builds and then you get the world's attention. Barbara, the Me Too movement was one of those examples, Oh, right? absolutely. You watch the culture change as you watch the news coverage change, and the news coverage really reflected the culture change. News coverage didn't lead the way except for the Me Too stories that came out. Then it raises awareness, and then everybody and their brother is being accused of something, and media is all over it. It's really hard to figure out, though, which story will be which, the one that, that gets lots of following or crickets. Look at the difference between... Whitewater, a supposed scandal involving Hillary Clinton that went nowhere. New York Times had had major resources and talent on this story. Did lots of nothing came of it. And then there was Watergate, which well, but Whitewater, took a long time. Whitewater itself didn't have some of the underlying truth to it. There was the land scandal did, as yeah. we think about that. But what happened? I think that topic kind of got almost taken over by right-wing ideologues who didn't deliver the journalism on it. But things that captures people's imaginations, sex, money, yes. mm -hmm. power, Food. Food. corruption. Yeah. The, basic, the basic needs are what make a story take off. So Clarence Thomas has what? It's power, race. 
Yeah. And, and difficult. And, you know, we were we all have seen examples, as Judy was saying, of stories that just kind of don't get the attention you think. I think back to my tenure as editor of the Times Union included the great investigation into Nexium, what we identified as a sex cult. Significant reporting led by investigative reporter Jim Odato that did not lead to the kind of follow-up until the New York Times got into the story a couple of years later. And suddenly, then the prosecutors followed. And then it's made for TV movie. Yeah, then it's made, yeah. <laughs> right, and we also saw this with the Catholic Church and the sexual abuse scandal by priests there. I mean, those stories were built over a decade or so, and it wasn't really until the Boston Globe did their breaking story that everybody's attention got. The, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, where I worked, did stories about bad priests, really bad priests, in the 1980s. And they were suppressed and played down. Nothing came of it until until Boston. And now they're worldwide. You see those stories still. And it has the impact also. Uh, the Houston Chronicle subsequently, a couple of years ago, followed up on the Southern Baptist right. Convention, the nation's largest Protestant church, and the sex abuse there, which has roiled that denomination and actually is leading to a split. You see it in hate crimes, too. And I remember when this guy Larry Hobbs, who was the reporter at the small town in Georgia where Ahmad Arbery was killed— and he was the one who pursued the police reports saying there's something odd about this. If he hadn't foiled and bugged and tried to get the information to understand why was this death in the suburbs that day, if he hadn't written about it, none of that would have come out, I don't think. And then there's the video. But what really made that story explode was when the New York Times then picked up the story that he had been working on. So you don't want to just be a copycat as a reporter. There is that fear that you will just be seen as somebody piggybacking on somebody else's reporting. But if you're competitive, as a lot of journalists are, you say, you know, look at that. I can do something here. I can make something more out of this. Well, that brings us back to the Guardian story and Clarence Thomas, because that was new, new reporting, yeah. really explosive, I think. I think so. When and I they, saw uh, this story with, moving, I thought this could be the one that to be brings them down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I thought it was an ingenious tactic to check the Venmo accounts of people who work with Clarence Thomas. Well, somebody I, might have tipped them off, too. Could you know, be. Once those things come out, people start to tip you I off. Would, I would vote for a tip. Okay, so as journalists, do we want him to be impeached? Well, I don't care. I'd love. Well, I shouldn't say I don't care. <laughs> it would make a good series of stories. There would be a lot of good journalism out of that. Yeah, that's true. Well, I remember when Trump looked like could win back in a horrible 2016, and journalists talked about whether they wanted him to win or not. And that was actually the mindset that if he came in, imagine the stories we're going to be writing, which turned out to be true. Things we had never seen before. So as a journalist, do you want that or not? Are oh, you a, that's a disgusting way to think of journalism. <laughs> it, is. it is. Are you an American first or a journalist? You know, that often goes to a question that people ask about war coverage, for example. If you're a journalist and you're covering conflict, or are you a patriot? Are you an American? And are you? This emerged a lot in coverage of Vietnam, of course, when reporters were delving into topics the government didn't want you to talk about. And yet the goal was to tell the truth. And so you... You wonder, what is my responsibility here? Am I trying to protect the lives of my compatriots, or am I just trying to get at the truth even I think it risk? also damages the reputation of journalists when we are outright saying, we hope this does somebody in. Let's go get them. We don't talk about it, and so people think it, That's which is why I bring it up. And you deflected me. What's that? I, I think that being a war correspondent, you want to save the world. You want to stop fighting, save lives. That is not in conflict with being for America versus being for, I don't know, Vietnam. But in a case like this, 
where if Clarence Thomas were impeached, first time ever, right, for a Supreme Court justice, a horrible blot, a horrible sign of corruption, that's bad for America, but a hell of a story. So what do you root for as a journalist? Well, you could say that cleansing is good for America. You could say that the integrity of the Supreme Court is damaged by this. Or, you know, the court has always operated behind a curtain. Mm -hmm. And so the supporters of the Supreme Court are saying that their integrity, their reputation is harmed by this journalism. But in fact, that's that's not what journalists really can care about. We really have to just pursue the story. Right. I've long maintained that we've been far too careful about our Supreme Court coverage, a deferential. Why not have their deliberations open to the public? I mean, mm-hmm. what difference would it make? It's not going to affect the stock market, really, in one way or the other. We need to hear them in their discussions. That would be very illuminating. What's, what's the problem with that? And I love the idea that we're finally taking a good, hard look at what money they make and how it comes in and uh, asking some serious questions. They have been treated with white gloves for far too long. It actually goes back to Marbury v. Madison when the court established itself as being the final arbiter of what is law in America and thereby kind of set itself apart. And it pretends that it's not a political institution when, in fact, it is really political. And lately, it's basically a tiny little nine-person legislature. It has worked remarkably well through the course of American history. There have been periods of time when... when Plessy versus Ferguson. Absolutely. (laughs) But then we ended up with uh, you keep um, precedent until it's really bad and it gives you a new right if you change it. And now that seems, again, because we're politicized now, it just seems you can change whatever you want. It does seem like we're in a dangerous new age. All right. We need to turn to another topic here. I promised we were going to talk about good news and bad news about the news. Okay. What do we get first, the good news or the bad news? What do you want, bad news or good news? Bad news. Bad news. Okay. (laughs) The San Diego Union Tribune is sold to the company that is owned by Alden Global Capital. That is bad Bad news. (laughs) Thumbs down on that. Yeah. It's a major newspaper uh, owned by the uh, same guy who owns the Los Angeles Times, Patrick Soon Kim, and he is now selling this to the company that actually you've had some experience with, Barbara. Yes. So I know the bad news firsthand, and so should everybody in the United States, because they are now, I believe, the second largest owner of newspapers in the country, which is frightening. So the Saratogian and the Record were one of the early acquisitions of the Kingston Daily Freeman, uh, the Kingston Paper, mm -hmm. Oneida Paper. Yep. What did those papers lose when they were acquired by Alden Capital? Um, They lost their heart their soul and their staff. (laughs) Wow. They were gutted. Not necessarily in that order. And I hasten to add that there are still real journalists at these papers who are trying to do a credible job, like salmon swimming uphill. Ooh, salmon ultimately either get hit by a bear or die after they uh, breed. So grilled. Yeah. (laughs) It's not good for the salmon. So that is the bad news. And we actually got a correspondence from a loyal listener in Pennsylvania, Ed, who writes to say that we spend too much time talking about the demise, the sad demise of print journalism. And we should spend more time, he says, talking about the very hopeful development of... Here comes the good news. Here's the good news, folks. Not-for-profits taking over local newsrooms. We have seen this happening in a number of places. I was advising a group that bought seven newspapers in northern New Jersey last year and turned them into not-for-profits by removing the profit dollars, that amount of money that goes into that, that leaves more capital available for staff and creating good journalism and so on. And, of course, they're the 
tax advantages of being a not-for-profit. But this is now happening in Maine. This is the biggest example of where this is happening. 22 newspapers in the state of Maine, including five of the six largest dailies in this state, have been now basically donated to a not-for-profit by the owners. This could be really significant for journalism in the entire state of Maine. Right. It will still be operated as a business. They will still charge for subscriptions. They will still try to get advertising. But the ownership by a foundation gives them certain advantages. They're able to go out and seek grants, for example, in a way that for-profit newspapers aren't able to do that. We're, we're seeing it on a smaller scale. Even in New York State, down in the Hudson Valley, the Highlands Current is owned by a nonprofit. And they distribute their paper for free. People can be members and send money in, but there's an underlying nonprofit for it, too. And one of the things that makes that sustainable is that they actively pursue grants, too, to beef up their staff. And they're, they're doing a great job. It's small scale, and it's close to the city, so they have a affluent readership base. But it can work. This is happening in big and small. In Pennsylvania, public radio station WITF has taken over the second largest newspaper in eastern Pennsylvania. In Chicago, the public radio station there has taken over the Chicago Daily News, uh, the small struggling tabloid. But it gives power to these news organizations because you get all the staff of those newsrooms, but the newspapers can't survive well on their own given the profit expectation that newspapers have always had. So it, it gives new life to the news coverage in these communities. What, what I find especially hopeful is the commitment to journalism, that when they were changing hands, unlike the Alden Capital places, these nonprofits that are coming into being have a commitment to journalism, local journalism. So that I find very hopeful. The part, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer or Barbara Bummer, but I'm concerned about the business aspect of it, because even though you're a nonprofit, you still have to make money to run your business and pay your staff and keep the lights on, keep your websites running. Yep. That's still going to be a challenge. It is. The it Porter is a challenge. The Institute in Florida has run not just a community newspaper, but a very big, important paper with national consequences for years, and that's in St. Petersburg. So it is a model that has worked. It is sad, however, to think that newspapers' business model collapsed and we have not come up with a replacement. Our replacement is, okay, we won't make it a real business anymore. We'll make it a non-for-profit. And that means that I think the scope and depth of newspapers will decline because there's just not enough money. At least I haven't seen it so far, with the one exception of St. Peter's. If it were such a great model, why aren't there more papers like that? And that has had its own cuts. I mean, the St. Yes, Petersburg, yes. now known as the Tampa Bay Times, has right. really had a lot of... Uh, They've been affected by the same anti-business, anti-good business forces that have affected newspapers everywhere. You know, the main papers have the advantage of not being saddled with a lot of debt because that's what happens when a, a venture capital company buys a newspaper. And in that respect, we need to be thankful for the people who sold the papers to the foundation or who, who gave the newspapers to the foundation because they were not asking for a ton of money and they allowed those papers to go forward without having to make these huge interest and principal payments on debt. There were two influences, really, that killed the newspapers around the country. First, of course, is the rise of digital journalism, the rise of the Internet. Basically destroyed the model of print journalism just because 75 percent of the revenue for newspapers came from advertising, and that now all goes to these digital giants. But the second was greed. It was the greed of the newspaper owners who when it did all of this debt to acquire. Barbara, when you were the editor of the Saratogian and it was a Gannett paper, Gannett was a big company, but it wasn't until it went on its real acquisition spree 
that it amassed all of this debt, which when Gannett severed its print side from its broadcast side, all the debt was shoveled onto the backs of the newspapers. Right, and this is nothing new. Gannett owned the Saratogian for years, and they sold it a long, long, long time ago. Yeah. But you're exactly right. As they continued to grow, they're acquiring debt. And to pay for their debt, the papers that already exist are suffering. They sold their buildings Yeah, it's downtown. a share, publicly shared. Yeah, yeah, when yeah. You're on, when you're a public company, too, you're beholden to the shareholders, not to your readers. And while in America we have recently seen some push to say that the responsibility of corporations is not only profit, that is still fundamentally what Wall Street rewards. It is only profit, not corporate social responsibility, that is determined to be the be-all and end-all for private ownership. Tragically so. If we actually defined the responsibility of public ownership of having a social component, which the Republican Party will never go along with, there would be more money available for Sounds, sounds like you've got the draft of your next commentary. I think I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> I've written that. This is the Media Project from Northeast Public Radio. Uh, we have Judy Patrick, Rosemary Armea, Barbara Lombardo, and I'm Rex Smith. And if you want to share your thoughts, media at wamc.org. We're always glad to hear from you. It's always interesting to hear what folks actually have to say, media at WAMC.org. Okay, so here's more change. The New York Times has disbanded its sports department. This is big news in my household. My late father-in-law was the sports editor of the Times. So this uh, made a big dent in uh, conversation with my wife and her sister. But is it really a big deal? The Times owns The Athletic, which is an independent website. And they say, well, that's how we're going to deliver content now. But what does it mean? What does it say when a major newspaper says, we just can't have our own sports anymore? I think it's been a long time coming. You're going to see other places do this. Game coverage Mm -hmm. is not something you wait for the newspaper the next morning to come out to read. You see it instantaneously. And this is brilliant. They have another site. However, there is a huge loss. Sports writing in the New York Times, and you know it personally, Rex, has been some of the best writing, not journalism, not Sports, it's some of the best writing that we have seen in the 20th century in the United States. And those writers now, we've lost that. And the staff is being dispersed. Their baseball writer is going to the national desk, for example. Yeah, That's a huge loss. It is. Actually, sports writing has always been a place where there's great writing. It's the proving ground for an awful lot of people. A lot of news writers use sports writers as their model to make people care and to engage them. And I feel like that's going to be lost. And sports is also so central to culture and thought and the way we talk in America. And that, I'm afraid, will all be lost. That, you know, the athletic is going to be, you know, here's who won the game and here's the highlights. Blah, blah, blah. We have lost something. And I don't think maybe anybody will really care about it so much as we old newspaper people. I feel like a dinosaur again. Hmm. Well, it's because of the way you might be thinking about sports coverage. So sports coverage, as far as box scores, that's long gone. As far as who won last night's game, you're not looking in a newspaper online or in print for that kind of information, really. Although, okay, if you're in Boston, you're going to look in the Boston Globe to read about those teams. You're not going to find that in New York. Tiger Woods was really like the news right, value the real, in their Right, sports. the stories, the stories, stories right. not tied to a specific game. And I think that is a loss. I, I think it sounds on the surface to me like a mistake to eliminate the sports department and then divvy up everything having to do with sports into the little category. Here's right. You're going to do business, and you might do profiles, and you might do this, that you really need somebody thinking about sports as the bigger entity right. 
And then maybe they're saying, okay, this is a business story. This is a people profile. I think that is an error. But it's a huge, it, it was a huge circulation driver for newspapers when circulation was the issue. You know, when I was the editor of The Record in Troy, I remember when we the paper was ordered shrunk by that beneficent ownership. And after the front page, the only other front was the sports front. That is the other separate section. You had to have a sports cover. I mean, you know, that was more important than the local news cover. More well, and important the than little business. league scores. We both oh, suffered yeah. through that same yeah, we did. <laughs> person. And uh, having all the local little league, the uh, local high school sports, the scores. Um, uh, and I think people have just turn to other sources to find those kinds of stories. A lot of times it's the it's the leagues themselves. Well, that's the problem also with all the major sports teams now have massive organizations reporting their own work. It's not just PR people, but they have their right. own every websites. Team does. Every team, every league, and that is becoming where a lot of uh, recent journalism graduates and even veteran sports reporters go. That is rather scrubbed to make the coverage Less and the athletic staff could be doing the types of sure, stories right. that they Rosemary are. and I are, are lamenting. One of the contributing factors here were our earlier deadlines as well. I mean, if, if you've got to go to press at 5 o'clock, which the New York Times does in some markets now, you can't get any scores in. And I found when I was running a, a, a local paper that it was more and more you even couldn't get the high school basketball games. This kind of game coverage has gone by the wayside with the with the Internet. But the loss of a legacy department, the cohesion that that department probably gave the endeavor, um, it does give you pause. I actually, though, at first I was horrified. And then I said, wow, that's really, really a, what a ballsy move. You know, they, we need a new model. We have all talked on this program mm -hmm. about we got to think a different way. we got to try new things. And the New York Times, at great risk, is doing it. So I'm applauding it. And they always can go back if it doesn't work out, but I bet they sure. make it work. Yeah, they probably will. But by the way, speaking of great sports coverage, credit to the Daily Northwestern, the student newspaper of yeah, Northwestern absolutely. University. Reporters named Nicole Marcus, Alice Brown, Cole Reynolds, and Divya Bardawaj, they published a story about the longtime football coach, and about hazing allegations. The coach ended up getting fired after many years. This is quite remarkable reporting done by student journalists at great risk, I would think. Very impressive work. That kind of thing actually gives you some hope about young journalists for the future. Especially if they're going to go into nonprofit organizations where it's going to be the journalists running the place and they have got to have a desire to do real public-spirited journalism, to question authority, do all the things that we now count as old school. I, I love that story because it questioned authority, and right. they took on the administration. And they took a report that was done, I think the coach was originally only suspended, mm -hmm. And I think by publishing that, pursuing the story, I guess people came out and talked to them. The floodgates opened from <laughs> yeah. And that's yes. the value of being on the ground. I mean, the, the papers that cover Northwestern, they missed this story. And it wasn't until the college students started to hear these stories that that developed. And, and it was an impressively right. comprehensive story. People can find it online because they really dug into that story. It worried me in the beginning because they had anonymous sources stating what they recall had happened, their experiences, and although it was firsthand experiences. But so when it's anonymous sources, I get a little nervous about that. But then they could go back and cite what happened in the report with this person. And so you have it was a, substantiated. You have credibility in part because Northwestern University has had one of the great journalism schools forever, Medill uh, School of Journalism, and now it has a long name, 
integrated communications and stuff, whatever that is. So you assume that these young people have had good training and by citing anonymous sources that there is some backup to that. It's not just a student saying, well, I'm, I talked to a guy who talked to a guy. Uh, right. And I'm assuming they're getting good advice from an advisor and from professors as well. So let's not... Although we them. learn never to assume, I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> One of the journalism axioms. But, you know, this goes to the question. I mean, you all have taught. Uh, I have not been uh, anything other than a guest uh, lecturer. But the question about whether you would encourage student journalists to, student journalism students to go into journalism. Here we have a report from Pointer, the journalism think tank in Florida that Rosemary referred to earlier, saying that this era feels different. After 20 years of layoffs, it still seems as though we're seeing the demise of some really powerful organizations. You know, the Washington Post has laid off more. Vox Media uh, laid off uh, 130 people, NPR, and so on. Is this a time for young people to be even going into journalism? Would you urge them to? First of all, I seldom find, even in journalism classes, a majority of students who want to do journalism. They want to learn about communication skills, how to talk to people, like interviewing skills. But to do journalism, that passion that I was going to go out and really make a difference in the world, I'm not seeing that. And I don't encourage them to do that because the job market is incredibly unstable and unpredictable. The pay is low. The prestige is non-existent, and it's increasingly dangerous. And it takes a special person to go into journalism. I think that in your heart of hearts, Rosemary, you really do agree with what I'm going to say, okay. that of course we want... <laughs> These kids that have the hunger in their belly to just, go after a story, recognize yeah. a story and go after it. We do want them to go into journalism. And I can think of no more noble profession. Just have easy. a backup plan. <laughs> Well, as we begin to close off the show, we have to note uh, what has happened in, quote, journalism at Fox. Two facts about Fox News. First, three top executives who helped Rupert Murdoch shape the uh, organization from the start have put out a statement saying they're ashamed of themselves and if they had known what it was going to become. Too little, too late. Too little, too late. Yeah, absolutely. Second, the new primetime lineup is there. 7, 8, and 9 p.m. You've got Jesse Walters and Greg Gutfield and Sean Hannity now in primetime. It's the Trump team. Can you team. watch it? Have you tried? It's really hard. It's yeah. it's like Trump campaign ads, one after All another. It. Yeah. It's awful. Fox News is an oxymoron. Yeah. Let's face it. Yeah. Yeah, they've got Laura Ingram at two at, at seven o'clock starting things off. Mm. Um, they're trying to recapture the audience they lost when they lost Tucker Carlson, who who is out on Twitter interviewing bad people and not getting many views. I think that audience, they're trying something new with a couple of their new hosts. They're trying to add some comedy or some quirky elements to the, those stories, thinking that you, know, you can't just keep trying to repeat Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson and just different people. But their audience is their audience. I don't. Some of them will come back. It's very good news for Donald Trump and his reelection. All right, that is all we have time for today. Sorry, Such folks. Be an hour. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was the ghost of Alan. <laughs> That's it. Thank you, Alan. That's Rosemary Armeo and Judy Patrick and Barbara Lombardo and I'm Rex Smith. With thanks to our producer David Gustina, and to you all for joining us once again this week on the Media Project. Freedom of the